Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Remember, remember, the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. So begins the English folk verse celebrating and memorializing the foiling of Guy Fawkes' attempt to blow up England's House of Parliament on November 5, 1605. It's quite a jolly little song, including such sentiments as a rope, a rope to hang the Pope, a pen's worth of cheese to choke him, a pint of beer to wash it down, and a jolly good fire to burn him. Hip, hip, hooray. Well, today, we're going to look at the importance of remembering, marking events in our history. Not in a those-were-the-good-old-days way, but as an active force of living in the present and moving toward the future. So I thought to get us started, I'd try to create my own little ditty to kick off the message. So here goes. Remember, remember, the 10th of November, the Lucan treason and plot. I know of no reason why the Lucan treason should ever be forgot. Colleen manned the pulpit. She was the culprit who, that tried to fill his shoes to build on his start without falling apart or fanning the Mike's Gone blues. No rope, please no rope, to hang this dope. Just a prayer for wisdom to hear what God has to say about remembering the day. Then maybe a pint of beer. <laughs> hip, hip, hooray. <laughs> So please, with that, stand for the reading of today's scripture. It is found on page 250 in the chair Bibles. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests were standing, and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you in the future. When your children ask you, What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua, and they carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. And then moving down to verse 19. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. 
He said to the Israelites, in the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Today is the second Sunday of our series called Every Step and Arrival, based on Eugene Peterson's devotional by the same title. And we're focusing in on day 19, Memorialize God's Work in Your Life. It's a perfect place to land after last week's reminder to slow, to shut out the noise, and to listen to the Noel that sings, You are loved by God, accepted by God. And your life has an eternal meaning and destiny. Today's focus gives us tools to carry God's voice with us by actively remembering his work in our lives. There's a lot going on in this passage. God's people have spent 40 years in the wilderness. In fact, they find themselves in the very same month where 40 years earlier, They left slavery and bondage of Egypt, and now, finally, they have stepped into the promised land. On this day, every step was truly an arrival. Just as their deliverance was miraculous as they crossed the Red Sea on dry land, so their entrance is equally miraculous, like water wall bookends to a 40-year journey. The Jordan would have been at flood stage this time of year. So imagine with me trudging down, down, down to the bottom of the Jordan riverbed, not in muck and mud, but on dry, rocky land, hurrying as fast as possible, yet reverently around the priests and the Ark of the Covenant, being ever mindful of the somewhere between 50 and 200 foot wall of water with nothing visible holding it back. And then finally scampering back up to the bank and realizing you've made it. You've arrived. The adrenaline must have been through the roof. But before heading to Jericho and claiming this land of legend, God tells Joshua to stop and to send 12 men back to the center of the Jordan to take up 12 large stones from the place where the priests stood with the ark, and to set up these stones as a lasting memorial of the powerful hand of God and his faithfulness. So why was this pause so important? We need to stop here, just as the Israelites did, and ponder this moment, for I think the significance of these memorial stones can be easy to hurry by. And if we do, we miss an invitation to actively remember in a way that can transform both our present and our future. Henry Nouwen said, Forgetting the past is like turning our most intimate teacher against us. Yet we live in a world that's always focused on the future, on what's next. 
We eagerly wait for the birth of a baby and then for the baby to sit and smile and crawl and walk and for the first day of school and somewhere in the mix the child picks up our eagerness for what's next and can't wait for later bedtimes and more freedoms and middle school and high school and graduation and college and career and marriage and children and a better job and a bigger house and grandkids and retirement and so it goes. What's next after what's next? And here God invites us to pause in the very midst of it all, and take note, memorialize, remember. So first, let's look at the importance of developing a Christian memory. Rabbi Rabbi Abraham Joshua Herschel wrote, much of what the Bible demands can be comprised in one word, remember. I don't think we Americans have a very good understanding of what the important role memory plays in our lives. But God clearly understood the importance of pausing, noticing, and committing to memory his present present, his active presence. We see it throughout the Bible. It starts with creation, where there's a pause between the work of everything becoming and the world going forward with a blessing of the seventh day of rest. And so it continues throughout the scripture. Each week ends with the Sabbath, a day of holy remembering. And then there are the many feasts and festivals, including Passover, purposefully included in the Hebrew calendar. Numerous days to remember and celebrate the faithfulness of God. And perhaps the most important remembrance of all in the New Testament, the table. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. And in this remembrance, his presence is here and now, and we carry his presence forward. To the Hebrew mind, remembering was not a bothersome weight to carry forward or a sentimental journey of escaping the present, but rather as necessary as breathing. Baal Shem Tav Taught forgetfulness leads to exile while remembrance is a secret to redemption. Let me say that again. Forgetfulness leads to exile while remembrance is a secret of redemption. In the book, The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ, Fleming Rutledge talks about both Passover and communion in a way that helps us better understand this Hebrew mindset of remembrance or memorial. It's a bit lengthy what I'm going to read, but I think it is so good, so crucial, so bear with me. The Passover Seder is ordained in the Torah. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an ordinance forever. The Passover is to be observed as a memorial day. Biblically understood, this is a world removed from what we usually mean by memorial, memory. Remembrance in biblical thought does not mean calling to mind. Remembering means present and active. This is the reason for the statement in the Passover that it is not our ancestors who brought, were brought by God out of bondage and into freedom, but we ourselves. The Seder Supper is not a memorial of God's saving action in the past, 
but an appropriation of that same saving power in the present. The whole matter of remembrance is very important for biblical understanding. The Exodus story begins this way. The people of Israel groaned under their bondage and cried out for help. And their cry under bondage came up to God. And God hearing their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew their condition. This passage has sometimes been made to seem ridiculous, as though it meant that God had forgotten the Israelites. That the Israelites had just slipped his mind somehow, and now he had suddenly recalled them. Similarly, prayers asking God to remember have been misunderstood, as though God needed us to remember him, or because otherwise he might have forgotten. Why, that was never the meaning of remembering in the prayers of the Bible. Remembering in Scripture refers to present action, If a woman prays to God to remember her mother, that does not mean please think of my mother from time to time. It means take action on behalf of my mother. Similarly, if we say that the Lord's table is a memorial, we do not mean that we are simply thinking about Jesus' last supper. When we repeat Jesus' words, do this in remembrance of me in a communion service, we do not simply call Jesus to mind. Jesus is actively present with power in the communion of the people. Disputes about the Lord's Supper have divided the Christian church, but understanding the biblical concept of remembrance can help us. We are not just thinking about Jesus' action in the upper room. We acknowledge that he is present and acting with the community gathered at the table in the present time. I hope you hear the very active present, and even forward piece of memorializing here. It is, in the words of our own Mike Lucan, an invitation to walk backwards into the future. And it is essential to our Christian journey. So why does it matter so much? Because memory is the basis for our identity. Psychologists tell us this. Some go so far as to say we are our memories. But you and I know that we don't remember everything. We only remember what in some way is meaningful to us. And this is why memorializing is such a gift. The 12-stone memorial by the Jordan River was a tangible reminder of the true identity of God's people. Both the victories and the struggles that made them who they were. Joshua 4, starting with verse 4. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of tribes of Israelites to serve as a sign among you. God didn't just pick the number 12 out of a hat. Each man appointed was from one of the 12 tribes. They were the descendants, the sons of Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. They were the chosen people called out by God, and each stone reminded them of their history, their identity. And note the stones are from the center of the riverbed where the priest stood holding the Ark of the Covenant. The ark contained the Ten Commandments, which surely would bring to mind both God's call to live his way 
and the horrible failures and rebellions of their parents and grandparents who had died during those 40 years in the wilderness. This was all part of who they were. The ark also contained manna, their provision throughout those 40 wilderness years. This tangible evidence of both their identity and God's great faithfulness was to be both a remembrance of the past and a hope for the future. And they were to pass this identity on to their children and their children's children and to the people of Israel forever. And oh, how we need this identity check. They needed it then and there. You see, they were in what is sometimes referred to as a liminal space. Liminal is a Latin word meaning threshold. It's any point or place of entering and beginning. They were between the what was and the what's next. Remember, other than Joshua and Caleb, these folks, all they'd ever really known was the wilderness. And now they were stepping foot in the new land. But it wasn't going to be handed to them on a silver platter. There were battles ahead, many battles. There were giants to face. And manna was a thing of the past. The clothes and shoes that hadn't worn out for 40 years would start to wear. And they needed to both learn a new way of life and to trust God as never before. But they had no idea what to expect. And oh, how they needed to be reminded of their identity. And so do we. Especially when we are in those liminal spaces. Theologian and author Richard Rohr said, Liminal space, the place of waiting, is a unique spiritual position where human beings hate to be, but where the biblical God is always leading them. It is when you have left the tried and true but have not yet been able to replace it with anything else. It is when you are finally out of the way. It is when you are between your old comfort zone and any possible new answer. Identity has always been a struggle for me. I've been on this faith journey for a very long time. I know my true identity as God's beloved daughter. But holding on to that identity, cementing cementing that identity from my head to my heart has been a continual struggle. Remember, the basis of identity is memory, and it appears some of my memories are so entrenched in my being that it doesn't take much for me to forget my true identity in Christ and instead live in my taught identity as inadequate, stupid, a person of little or no significance. Now, I have made progress, real progress, but I would not be truthful if I said I am always secure in God's loving acceptance, and have fully embraced that I am his beloved with a purpose and an eternal meaning. No. Too often things happen that remind me of my constant need to remember where my identity lies, especially when I am in those liminal spaces. But God is faithful. Two years ago, I was part of the Renovari Institute of Spiritual Formation. I, was, I had been feeling that God was inviting me to step not out of working with children, but perhaps to step a bit beyond my comfort zone of kids' ministry. And I didn't know what that looked like. 
I also didn't especially like it. But I recognized this unsettling. I was in a liminal space. And the Renovari Institute seemed a good place to explore the stirring. Most of the program is online, but each semester there is a week-long residency, a sort of intensive where professors and teachers and spiritual directors are present to go deeper. And it is intense. From 7.30 in the morning to 9 uh, 9 p.m. at night, you're in lectures and small groups and participating in spiritual exercises. Yes, there are breaks, but not enough time to really unplug. And it was during my first residency that my taught identity surfaced in a big way. The very first evening, shortly after arrival and check-in, we reported to a beautiful chapel at the retreat center where we would have morning and evening prayers each day. We'd been told to bring something to place on the altar that reminded or that represented where we were at in our spiritual journey and in our relationship with Christ. I debated about what to bring and decided to bring a visual reminder I'd created after a time of spiritual direction. This represented a new and growing sense that, like Psalm 131-2, surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. I believe I believed I was being called to cease striving and rest quietly, listening to the heartbeat of my heavenly parent. Looking back, I think this was also the image I hoped that my cohorts would see in me. At the last minute, though, I had decided to tack another image on the back of that one. I created it at a soul collage class without really knowing what it represented. But since we'd spent a month living in Psalm 23, the image had begun to have a special significance. So I brought it along just as a backup and just stuck it on the back. The first night, I shared my mother-child piece and laid it on the altar, having no idea what was ahead. Throughout the sharing, I started comparing myself to the others there and determining how I measured up. There were several pastors, not children's pastors, but the real thing, senior pastors. (laughs) There were a few doctors and others in the medical profession, some therapists and psychologists, uh, spiritual directors, seminarians and graduate students, and a lawyer or two. Very quickly, I determined that all were better educated and intellectually superior. They also had amazing stories, some of deep pain, and I found my own pain was being awakened. The next day the lectures began, I particularly remember one on the importance of reading ancient texts, and I confirmed that I was sunk. But we also heard from a man who has become one of my favorite pastors, Trevor Hudson, a South African gentleman who above all longed to remind us of our true identity as God's beloved. Unfortunately, by the third day, I was on overload and the voices of inadequacy and the message that I did not belong here was so loud I couldn't take in God's gentle voice of love. I was sinking and I didn't even know if I should stay. At Thursday morning prayers, we were sitting quietly pondering a scripture and listening for God's voice. I can't remember what the scripture was, but I vividly remember noticing a hummingbird above us in the chapel rafters. As we sat in silence, 
the hummingbird flew down and headed toward me. Then it actually hovered over my head for several seconds before it flew over the altar and hovered over where my item was placed. Then it flew back into the rafters. Now, only I knew what was on the other side of the image I'd laid down. Only me and God and now you. I almost ran to the spiritual director I'd shared my struggle with the day before. I took her hand and I led her to the altar where I turned over my soul collage card. You see, the second image I tacked on, this image of wilderness and a hummingbird and a tea set with a cup overflowing, reminded me of Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And in that moment, it was clear that my enemies were not people or things in my outside world. But those entrenched messages in my mind that held me captive preventing me from both truly resting in my beloved status as God's child and in becoming all God had designed me to be. For the rest of the week, this image stayed facing up on the altar. And I can truly say that those last few days, God continued over and over again to show me the beauty and reality of this beloved psalm. For he anointed my head with oil and my cup overflowed. This image is now a memorial for me that I need to return to over and over again. It symbolizes both my identity in Christ and God's amazing love and faithfulness. It is a reminder of a miracle that is as important to me as crossing the Jordan on dry land was to the Israelites. So back to the Jordan. There's a couple more things I think it's important to notice. You see, not only can memory submit our identity But as we develop Christian memory, memory cements God's identity. The stone taken from where the priest stood with the ark were not only reminders of who the people were, but who God is and ever will be. The ark of the covenant was their most holy reminder that God was ever present. That as Joshua 4.24 proclaims, the hand of the Lord is powerful. That God is faithful, that God is our provider, that God has been present in the past there on this miraculous day of crossing and going with them into the new land. That as the rest of verse 24 says, that you always fear the Lord your God. In other words, God alone is God and we are not. Rocks by the Jordan River and my hummingbird testify. That God is God, and there is no one like our God. Which brings me to my last point. Memorials testify to others of God's continued presence and faithfulness. This is where the importance of stories, rituals, and traditions come in. When your children ask you, what do these stones mean, tell them. Tell them the stories. Remember, it is there at the Jordan crossing, it is in the Passover celebration, it is at the Lord's table. And it needs to be part of our lives now, both to remember 
God's past faithfulness, but also to enable us to carry his presence and faithfulness forward. And note that these testaments act not just as remembrance to us, not even just to our children, but to the larger world. Joshua 4.24, he did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the Lord is powerful. In the good times, and especially in those hard times when we don't feel God, when uncertainty and fear and pain seem truer than God's faithful love and presence, we need the stories, the rituals, the traditions, the remembrance to ground us and to testify. And so do those we encounter. We are about to enter a season where symbols and traditions abound, but it is also a season where memories are not always happy, where loneliness is amplified. And the world needs to be reminded that the Savior has come. There's an old hymn called, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. There's a phrase in the hymn's second verse that says, Here I raise my Ebenezer. Now, this is not referring to Ebenezer Scrooge, though once you hear the meaning of the word Ebenezer, you're going to wonder at the choice of names for the man who found both redemption and transformation in the Christmas carol. But the writer of the hymn was referring to Samuel 7:12, which reads, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mezpah and Shen, and he named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. This was just after a series of devastating battles between the Israelites and Philistines and after the Ark of the Covenant had been captured. Samuel calls for repentance and the people respond with confession and they fast. And Samuel offers sacrifices and God gives them a thunderous victory over the Philistines. And so this stone called Ebenezer is to be their reminder. Ebenezer means God helps. God has helped us thus far. So where do you need to raise your Ebenezer? We all can recall situations, circumstances where our backs are up against the wall or life seems insurmountable or we are just dry and needed to know God cares. We've had them as a church and you've known them in your own life. And then against all odds or seemingly out of the blue, there's a word at the right time, an unexpected blessing of some kind, or a hummingbird in a chapel. How have you memorialized God's faithfulness? How will you? Some people journal, some take pictures, some create art, some tell stories or sing songs. The important thing isn't how you choose to remember, but that you do. I asked a few people if they had anything they could share as a testament to God's work in their life. This is Melinda's memorial, a remembrance of her sweet dog, Joy, who was a constant reminder of God's great joy in her life. Carissa has a rock, too, that says courage. It was given to her as a young girl when she was facing multiple MRIs, surgeries, and cancer treatment. It's a constant reminder that God was faithful and she was strong and resilient and she must never forget. Lorraine collects communion chalices. They sit in her office as a proclamation that Jesus' blood changes everything. 
Manuel was given this plaque many years ago when he was leaving to serve at another church for a time. It has become his testament that God isn't finished with him yet and that he will faithfully give him all he needs to finish well. These are not static symbols of the past, but active reminders for the present and for the future. In his devotional, Eugene Peterson ends with, Think of the symbols of God's redemption that you hold on to. Small artifacts, simple things that speak of his faithfulness to you. Show a few of these memorials to someone as you review God's faithfulness in the past and look forward to the days to come. I encourage you to do this very thing this week. And then to share them with your church family. Send a picture with a short explanation to Cody, to our church office, and it will be up to her to figure out a way to share them with us all. It'll be a fun way to develop our Christian memories, to remember our identity in Christ, God's identity as the faithful one, and to testify to each other in the world that he is faithful yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray. Faithful one, we thank you that you so graciously share your love and faithfulness with us that you have in the past and that you do it each day, whether we notice it or not, and that you promise to be faithful in the future, no matter what comes our way. Lord, um, open our eyes specifically to those who may need to hear that word, who may need someone to come alongside them and remind them of your love and faithfulness. Let us be your words, your hands, your touch. In your great name we pray. Amen.